the show where we go behind the curtain with the stars of the culture wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by John Ruddock. So, John, thank you for joining us today on Curtain Call. Lovely to have you here. Thanks so much for having us, Ellie Melly. A great honour. So, John is obviously a prolific writer and a political opinion guest on places like Sky News. He also writes for Spectator, which, and he's also the author of Make the Liberal Party Great Again, of which I have two copies. Uh, so, John, just to introduce us, what got you interested in politics? Like, what was it that drove you into politics in the first place? Because you're quite political. Yes, okay. Well, look, I guess growing up as a teenager, my father, who was a, a journalist in Tamworth, taught us kids that communism is a really, really bad thing and that a lot of people are suffering and that America and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were fighting a righteous cause against this evil empire. I believed all that. Now, then when I was 18, just in my, you know, just as my HSC was, or the year after my HSC, the Berlin War comes down and all these people under the Soviet Union, you know, you know are, are so thrilled to have freedom. And I thought, gee, well, everything, everything Dad said was right. And then you had it. You had it in the in the in the presidency of George Bush the first. You had four dramatic international events, and it was all very. Yeah, you know, when I that was between my ages of sort of eighteen and twenty two, very sort of formative years. So we had the Berlin Wall. Uh, we had Tiananmen Square. So we saw just how ruthless the communists could be. We had uh, the Kuwait um, uh, liberation, which was a very good war, you know, very low casualties, particularly on our sides, and it was, we had a little country ganged up against a, a bad country. And, you know, everybody was on side. The Russians were on side, and the Chinese abstained at the United Nations. But, and then we had the implosion of the Soviet Union. So all these things happened. Uh, so, you know, by that stage, I was at university, and I thought, wow, you know, well, this is what's good for the world, uh, free market economics and democracy. So then I got involved in the Liberal Party. And when I first joined the Young Liberals in New South Wales, and the university liberals, I ex and people had warned me before I joined that there was, they said to me, John, you won't be interested in that because it's just endless fights about stuff. And I thought, well, that's good. I thought it would be fights about, you know, who had the best foreign policy, Richard Nixon or um, Dwight Eisenhower. But it just, it was just this total schmozzle about between these two gangs, these two factional gangs. And so, I've been sort of in and out of the Liberal Party since that time, but I have, yeah, certainly been in it and been high energy inside the the, the factional war at times. But yeah, I just can't believe that what we need to do is it's producing bad politicians and we or, or sub subpar politicians, and we need high quality ones, and we'll get that through democratisation. Yeah, so basically the little John Ruddock had big international political events happening around him and decided that he wanted to be a part of of that kind of energy and 
environment. Uh, and I think you and I had a very similar experience with the Young Liberals. We got there and we found out that they weren't so interested in politics, they were more interested mm. in, in getting themselves elected, which is quite disappointing um, yes. to find out about the party. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, what I think is funny, I, I used to call you the Ever Ready Bunny because you get very excited when you start talking about the Liberal Party and politics in general, and it's it's great to have that amount of energy for a political idea. Um, and I read your piece in The Spectator this week, I think it was, called Rome, the Sequel, uh, which yeah. is a great piece. And in it you made the point that colonial Americans uh, were well-educated, better educated probably than most people in the current era, and particularly yes. their education centred around classical uh, ideas of liberty, their classical history, in particular the mm. stories of things like the old Roman Empire. And mm. one part about I thought was very interesting, you said that Britain was to America what Caesar was to Rome. And I found that interesting because Caesar is a name that's both associated with the fall of Rome Republic, with Gaius Octavius, uh, sorry, Gaius Julius Caesar, and the beginning of the Roman Empire with Gaius Octavius mm. later, or Gaius Caesar. Mm. So, mm. And the family name became associated with the entire Roman Empire. So do you want to explain what you meant by uh, Caesar was to Rome, what Britain was to America, the sort of crux of your recent yeah. piece? Okay, so uh, the history department in the world's best universities up, and, up until the sort of about the 70s that were dominated by a Marxist interpretation of history where they went back through all the great events in history and they reinterpreted them as an economic struggle between the rich and the poor. And that is how, uh, up until the late 1960s, the American Revolution was understood to be along Marxist lines in the um, amongst the academic world. Now, then what happened in the 1960s was there was this uh, academic at, 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 at Harvard called Bernard Balin, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for history back, when, back in the day when the Pulitzer Prizes meant something. And he said he, 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 he went... Through, through all the documents he could, the private correspondence, the political pamphlets, the newspapers from the 1700s to see what the American colonialists were actually uh, thinking about and talking about. And it wasn't about economics. What he, he, real, he, he, he came to the astonishing conclusion that one in four American colonial males uh, were very well read when it came to ancient history and things like the Reformation and the English Civil War, which you know, a lot of them have come out of, uh, the Magna Carta, Athens. But what he read, what, but, and they were fascinated with this stuff. I mean, a lot, they were, it was a very sort of rural society, but they were highly educated, which is, you know, tr traditionally not associated with more rural areas. And so they, the, the piece of history that Bernard Balin uh, recognised that they were most interested in, they were almost obsessive about it, was the last 100 years of the Roman Republic. So this is about sort of 140 BC to about 40 BC. Now, that Roman Republic has so many parallels with the American Republic. It's really quite extraordinary. I, I, list, I list sort of, you know, at least half a dozen of events that have happened in the Roman Republic and that uh, then subsequently, you know, have, a, a parallel situation has happened with the, um, with, with the American Republic. And, and one of those parallels was in, 19, in sorry, 146 BC, Rome, which had been at war with everybody for about sort of four or 500 years, found in one year it conquered its two great ancient enemies. It conquered Carthage and Athens in the one year and they became Roman provinces. 
And so Rome, for the first time, this great republic, which had by this stage had been around for about 400 years, uh, you know, which is you know, a lot longer than the American Republic uh, so far, and they, they had, with no external enemies, their warrior spirit turned inward. And so rather than capitalising on their awesome success and power, because the, the, the Mediterranean Sea after that was really a, a Roman lake, and they, yeah, they used to have internal political squabbles, um, but they used to sort them out. But now with no external enemies, the existential threats, their, their, their warrior spirit turned inwards and they had all these dreadful civil wars and purges and counter-purges, which ended up blowing up the Republic, the glorious Republic, and then giving us the Roman Empire, which also had its good moments, but basically the Roman Empire was a dictatorship run by a small military cabal. So I'm saying, look, look the equivalent to a, for, for America is when the Soviet Union fell over and America found itself, you know, uh, clearly the world's uh, leading superpower, really the world's only leading superpower. And that is still the case with all the American nukes and technology and everything else. And so America, now that they've sort of, you know, they've won the two world wars, they've, uh, they've won the Cold War, and uh, now what are they doing, just like Rome's did, they're turning their politics inward. So, you know, for most of them, the, America, the history of the American Republic, when a bill comes up on the House of Representatives or the Senate, every vote, unlike the Australian Parliament, as you all know, Ali Melly, every vote, in, every individual just decides how they're going to vote on that bill on their own conscience. Okay, we very occasionally have this amazing, amazing achievement in Canberra where we'll have a conscience vote. Well, every vote in America traditionally has been a conscience vote. So often lots of Democrats would vote with the Republicans and vice versa. But in the last sort of 10 years, and it's getting worse, the polarisation is just intense. And it's, I'm hoping that Americans can read the article and hopefully pull back and start to sort of appreciate constitutional norms again. Well, the influence of... Britain on America and its philosophies did found the nation more than I think modern Americans would like to admit that they they really were built on the old English principles of liberty and democracy that they got from um, classical uh, the classical world. But I must say the the Americans, despite uh, breaking away from the monarchy, they still like their family dynasties. I mean, they're always building the Bush dynasty and you know the the uh, they're always, if they can possibly elect another child of their last leader, they will. Do you find that interesting that they cling to that part of uh, their sort of ancient uh, way of managing a society, that there's still that desire to have a dynasty? This is a complete well, aside and question without notice. <laughs> people think that the great dynasty of American politics is the Kennedys. Well, that is not true. Uh, the, great, the great dynasty is the Bush family. Uh, because the Bushes go back to the pre-revolutionary era. There's a page on Wikipedia which outlines it all. This. They've been prominent uh, in pretty much every generation. They were very prominent in the 1840s, a, a one of the Bush uh, patriarchs, as one of the leading abolitionists in uh, the United States. So, yeah, and look, then the Kennedys, yeah, well, they certainly tried to be president three, to, three times and succeeded once. And, um, and, you know, the Clintons have tried to do it again. So, look, it is, look, I, I guess I, I don't think that, that that's probably not something that is unique to America because growing up in a political family, I find most kids actually grow disinterested in politics because they see the sort of the ugly side of it. But if you do happen to be interested in politics and you grew up in a political family, well, it's obviously a massive head start, which I suspect is the, um, 
the main explanation for that. I mean, like Winston Churchill's father was the leader of the opposition in um, in Britain. I think in the don't, late. Don't get me don't get me started on Churchill. I could talk all afternoon, and that is not what's in my notes for today. We could do a whole <laughs> separate thing on Churchill and his amazing political journey, which was a struggle that I don't think many people are aware of how difficult it was for him to succeed politically outside of the two world wars that he was involved in. Uh, you do make a good point that we should learn from the collapse of Rome. And it's often been said that Rome wasn't built in a day, but it was destroyed in an afternoon, which of course isn't true. Rome was sacked many times before it finally collapsed. And the only reason that it was able to be sacked in the first place was because it had gone through a long period of uh, slow internal degradation of the actual Roman uh, power centres. And part of that, uh, I think, was from its, it had explored and expanded itself so much and incorporated so many external territories that those territories ended up holding political power inside the capital and they didn't often have the Roman Empire's interest at heart. And so eventually uh, you ended up with... Um, the Roman philosophy and ideas being eroded to the point that Rome changed its religion. Uh, they lost their belief in the Roman story itself. Uh, basically everything that made Rome Rome was eventually lost by the time of its final sacking and the people who were living there were sort of shadows of the Romans we imagine. Are you worried that America, as you were talking about, their, their loss of their classical history, is heading down the same path of Rome and that maybe Trump was a last-ditch attempt to restore the American, so the Empire America, and that, like, are you worried that we might not be able to avoid the fate of Rome now that um, it seems to be heading towards a strong Marxist revolutionary, mm. but not in a good way, spirit? Well, you know, the early Romans, when you read sort of Livy and those boys, uh, uh, in the sort of first century or two, so we're going back to, you know, um, you know, five four, five hundred years before Christ, they were tough, you know, and they really celebrated being, you know, um, you know, extreme warriors. And and they were, and that because they were such good warriors, uh, you know, they ended up basically winning most wars and becoming super supreme and dominant. Now, when they became so dominant, uh, they became fabulously wealthy. And what that made them over time, the, the wealth, there's no question. And I don't know what the answer is to get around this because obviously we want to be wealthy. Uh, but the, the wealth over time did make them soft. And, I mean, I remember during the, um, when I was growing up and we used to see occasionally hostage crises on, on airplanes and things. And, you know, the hostages, uh, the, the terrorists would say to the government, you know, give us money or do something for us and we'll release these people. And the, gov the Western governments would always, always say, no, we won't negotiate with terrorists and often the hostages would be killed. Now, it was brutal, but I remember my parents telling me, well, look, if we, if we give in to them, it's only going to encourage them to do more and more people will suffer. And I thought, okay, well, that does make sense. Now, I remember during the, the Gulf War, the, the, Iraq, the second Iraq War, okay, which obviously went off the rails and was you know, a disaster. There used to be Western hostages taken in that. A few Australians were taken. And, the, and the, the, the Iraqi militias would say, you know, give us, you know, 10 million bucks and we'll release this person. And what started happening was that the Western governments did start to cave in, okay? And then, then there was more and more hostages taken and we just basically always gave in. We'd say, okay, here's your money, give us our person back. Now, that is a sign of weakness. What we used to do in the 1980s, I know it sounds harsh and John Ruddock's a, you know, a heartless bastard because, yeah, that hostage would have got killed. Okay, well, I'm, well, okay, look, 
of trying to prevent future hostage crises happening. So we need to be smart about this. That's just one little sign about how we are going soft. Uh, but look, I would say, look, that I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Elia Melly, about the, the fall of Rome. You know, Edward Gibbon totally shaped our view of, of, of ancient Rome. And Edward Gibbon, obviously from England, had a very Western European um, mindset and Protestant mindset, even though I know he wasn't much of a Christian. But he sort of thought Central Europe and Eastern Europe were unimportant. Now, the truth is the city of Rome may have fallen in, you know, 415 or something. The Roman state by this stage had very much, well and truly relocated to Byzantine um, and they basically kept things going fairly impressively, not as powerful as they were, but they were still a, the dominant power in the Mediterranean up until the 1400s. So Rome really had, you know, if you go from Romulus and Remus to the, to the fall of Constantinople, we're really talking, you know, 2,000 years. So people say that, well, is America going to fall? Well, look, absolutely not. Okay, now we just need to make sure it's a good superpower. I just think with all the technology it's got and all the, there is a never-ending uh, reverse brain drain going into the United States. Look, if you happen to be the world's best young cellist, uh, violin player or cellist or scientist or artist or you know anything and you happen to be born in china or brazil or you know wherever poland there is a reasonable chance you're going to end up in the united states okay now but what we have what we have to hope for and look look, look all their nuclear bombs and all their military and if people say yeah the russians have still got nukes and the chinese have got a powerful military look i'm pretty sure the u.s can you know could take on the whole world and probably win by morning tea if they really wanted to um so, yeah, look, I think America's, you know, America, this, I think the Biden administration is going to be, you know, a, a bad patch for America, okay? But America is so resilient that I think it will keep going and I think it will keep being dominant, but we're just going to make sure it's a force for good. Well, the uh, you mentioned that Rome continued on, but the Rome of the late period is, of course, not the Rome of Caesar, uh, they didn't even believe worship the same gods, nor was their influence over the region uh, the same as it was in previous centuries. So I think more what I was getting at is, well, yes, America, the country, may very well continue to be a force, but if it changed in its ideology, like yes. the USSR did, where it went from being one type of of nation to being a socialist nation, then that yeah. really does change the position that America has in defending democracy and liberty if it was to fall into this trap of socialism. So, yes, it may very well continue to be um, have the most guns and be, a, you know, that kind of power on the world stage, but it doesn't mean it's the same kind of power. Do you think that, I'll just quickly right. ask this, that it might right. change, do you think it might change the way that it interacts with the globe if its philosophy changes and therefore its role will change? Oh, I think that is the great challenge facing us right now. Let's imagine that for the next 20 years we had, uh, you know, a Biden-Harris-style administration unbroken for 20 years. I think that would permanently change America. And, I mean, I think we can certainly recover. Look, we got through the Obama years, I think, uh, you know, and uh, he was he was a hell of a lot more ideologically left-wing than, than, than Biden was. Biden doesn't really believe in anything. But, Biden's um, not in power. Biden's yeah, not yes. in power. Biden, Biden's controlled by a team of quite radical Democrats. 
and it's a dream come true for them. They've got they've got this pretend president who they sort of who's, who's officially got the power. But you're right, and he doesn't know what they're doing behind the scene. He wouldn't even have any interest. Uh, but yes, dangerous people, and I think these people are really freaked out because they think, look, we could only win this election through extreme manipulation of the process on about ten different levels, and they think, God, you know, this this populist movement which started out with the Tea Party ten years ago, which was just sort of a wing of the Republican Party. Well, then, they, you know, that, that Tea Party merged into the Trump movement and they won the presidency fair and square and they could only beat him after years of extreme harassment. So they must be thinking, gee, you know, uh, we're on the verge of losing power here and we've got to really sort of, you know, get in there and re-engineer the system as much as we can as quickly as possible while we've got our hands on the powers of leave, the levers of power so we can prevent us ever losing again because that's... You know, I, I, since, since Trump had almost zero institutional support and Biden had basically all the institutional support, but Trump could, you know, let's, let's say the election was fair and square. Well, Trump still is the, the, the second most popular person in the history of the United States in terms of, you know, got a hell of a lot more votes than Obama. Uh, so it still means that there's an enormous amount of people that would be sympathetic to this message. I think what we have to do now, I think Trump is not viable going forward as a, a political candidate. And what we, we need, it, the, the Republican Party is, you know, in a little bit of a crisis here. It's similar, it's different, but there is some parallels with 1964 when the great Barry Goldwater lost an election. He got about 38% of the vote to Lyndon Johnson's 61 or something. And it was a, you know, but Barry Goldwater had a magnificent message in 1964. It was, you know, small government, uh, you know, take on the Soviet Union. Uh, and, you know, deregulation. But Goldwater, for whatever reason, didn't really uh, connect with, with middle America that well. The conservative base loved him, but he got, he got destroyed in the election. Now, then just 16 years later, Barry Goldwater II came along and his name was Ronald Reagan. And he had exactly the same message okay, on everything, foreign policy, economics. But Ronald Reagan was just somebody that people liked. And everybody liked him. When Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister and he went to visit, this is in Hawke's memoirs, when he went to Washington, him and Keating went in, in, in late 83 to meet the President, as, as Australian Presidents always want to go over and meet the White House. And, uh, before Hawke and Keating met, um, met, went into the White House to meet the President, they went and meet, met Tip O'Neill, who was the Democratic Speaker of the House, so who's like the highest ranking Democrat in Washington at the time. And... Democrats and Labor Party, you know, uh, sister parties. So they went and had a little get together before they went and met with the president. And Tip O'Neill put his arm around Bob's shoulder and he said, look, Bob, uh, this guy Reagan is the most conservative son of a bitch you've ever met in your life, but you can't help liking the guy. Now, what we need is somebody with the Trump message, which, you know, he did bring world peace all around the place and he did raise living standards for the poor better than any other president in history. Uh, so if we can get somebody who has the same agenda, but who, I mean, I've always loved Trump. I've loved Trump since the 80s. Okay, I, I liked his entrepreneurial swagger. I know a lot of people, it puts them off. Okay, but putting that aside, we've got to find somebody with the same message, but who is, who people have the reaction where he's a happy warrior. Yeah, more of a stable genius, I think, is is what you're, you're after. Yes. The same yeah personality and charisma, but perhaps a little bit uh, more presentable to the cameras. But, you know, people like what they like. The reason that Trump was so successful 
is because he was something original and uh, didn't fit the cut that people were expecting of their politicians. And that is difficult to replicate for the Republicans, considering that most of them are carbon copies of each other and not very uh, compelling, which I think is a problem with most politicians these days. But we were speaking of the fall of the of Rome. So shall oh, yeah. we talk about the Liberal Party for a, a moment? Because they are yeah. certainly a party in the state of collapse. Um, now, Machiavelli, who's my favourite political philosopher, he okay. was a great study of the fall of the Roman Empire from a position much closer to its actual fall than we are today. And mm -hmm. he had an argument, and I'm going to read it so I, I don't get it wrong, in which he said that goodwill and fortune are the two most inconstant and unstable things Nevertheless, he who has relied least on fortune is established the strongest, and which essentially means that, yes, you may have some good luck and some 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 uh, leaders get by because they were just lucky. The best mm. leaders obviously have to work at their leadership and work at their country. Now, mm. I was, I've been watching both the Australian Liberal Party and the Australian Labor at state level and federal, and they seem to be coasting along with the rest of the world on this COVID issue without laying solid plans about what Australia is going to do if the world doesn't come up with a, a viable solution. You know, Australia, like when they're questioned, particularly Scott Morrison was questioned the other day of, well, what are the technical layout of this plan to get us out of this? Um, mm. As far as you guys are concerned, I think he turned around and said something like, oh, well, the virus writes the rules that we don't. It's like, well, no, as leader of the nation, you technically write the rules as best you can and you have to have a plan. You can't just sit around and hope there. Do you think that kind of complacent politics by nations like Australia relying on um, some global bureaucracies to solve major, like major issues as far as a nation's mm. stability is concerned is a problem? Like, do you wish they had more uh, leadership of their own coming from the party and more problem solving that we used to see in the old foundations of Australia where people were solving immensely difficult problems with much more dangerous viruses than we have today? And they still had plans and they were. They were very independent when they were solving these things. Well, look, look, we've got to remember when COVID mania hit, which is, you know, we pretty much say happy first birthday, COVID mania. It was just about this time last year. Um, Scott Morrison, uh, who had pulled off an election miracle uh, seven months earlier, eight months earlier, and we should be all very grateful for that. And as you know, Ellie Melly, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Scott Morrison, but I mean, no, uh, Bill Shorten. Uh, Bill Shorten uh, really did represent a clear and present danger. I mean, his whole agenda. Look, I actually give Shorten some credit because, you know, he's a bit like Houston in, in 83, uh, 93. He put all his cards on the table, okay, and but thank God he lost, okay, because it was a bad agenda. Now, Yeah, well, let's be clear. Uh, let's be clear. In conservative electorates, people, I, I was on polling groups. They were shouting, well, I can't vote for Shorten because I hate him, but I'm not pleased about voting for the Liberal na National in their present state. So it was more of a victory of, well, we can't elect Shorten than a, a we love Scott Morrison. So that puts the parties well, in perspective of what really happened. He had no, he had no uh, uh, agenda. He got elected with no agenda. He had one, one firm policy in that election announced about a week before the election, which was some another stupid first home by a convoluted scheme. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, the... Um, Morrison then wins and he's got no agenda. He's got he's, 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 he's won and he's got nothing to do. And then he has the very unfair treatment during the bushfire situation, which, you know, the Prime Minister uh, is not meant to be looking after bushfires, okay? 
And so it was extreme. It was like this vindictive mob who wanted Shorten to win, who getting they were getting even with Scomo over, you know, his look. The guy, the guy belong, deserves a holiday because I mean, one thing you can say about Scomo is he's a very hard worker, and uh, you know he's got young kids. I thought it was fine for him to go to Hawaii, no problem. It's a state government issue, but it was this big pylon, and he was in a lot of trouble. And the poll, he was taking a, a hit in the polls, and then COVID mania came along. Okay, well, Scomo thought, well, this will get me out of it. I can look like I'm the Winston Churchill to save the nation from this great peril. Now, what we could have done is. We could have, um, you know, not freaked out and done what Sweden did, okay, which is basically not blow up our civil liberties, not blow up our economy, although what's happening now is with the economy is we've crashed our interest rates so far that I'm worried that things are actually going to spiral out. It's going too, it's booming up too much right now, which, um, you know, if it goes too hard, it can blow its top. Um, so... What's happening now is, you know, if, if these, these, yeah, you know, the death rate in America, Ellie Melly, from 2019 to 2020. Do you know what it's up? It's up. I've asked some of my friends who are concerned. Well, about I know, COVID. I know that it's, I know that the actual statistics from a couple of studies have put it at 40 percent too high from errors and uh, the uh, the way they've been recording them. So I know that whatever they're quoting is the actual COVID death rate. Death rate is too high. But but my point was more not so not not so much about the virus itself, but about the political responsibility of a leader to have a plan, to be honest with the population about what they're going to have to go through and do. So you mentioned Winston Churchill. If he was overseeing COVID, he probably would have taken an approach more similar to what our original founding uh, politicians in Australia did, where they published numbers, they printed the good and the bad numbers. So we would know how many businesses had collapsed in Australia if we were being run by a Churchill-style operation he would be publishing his exact detailed plans about what was going to happen if this failed if these vaccines didn't come through then australia would do this and then you know this is the exact percentage of people we have to vaccinate before we lift these regulations and then he would stick to those plans because he obviously believed in crafting um escape routes for problems that's that's how you get through wars you're going to do it by just hoping that other people will come to the table Every time one of our politicians is asked about specifics, they avoid the question. They say, oh, we have to wait and see. There doesn't seem to be any verifiable plan from anybody about what we're going to do and contingent plans about what happens if things go wrong on the world stage. Does that worry you, Suffer from someone in politics who loves the problem? I think you've described it well, okay, because uh, this, this whole, the, the COVID strategy has been around the world been run by the media. Okay, the, the, if the media, the media wants to be alarmist about this, and so when they focus on something or they or they go over here, that's really where our the health bureaucrats, which are running the show, and our, our weak politicians are just going along with what the media says, and 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 the media and the health bureaucrats, and they obviously they're talking amongst their international little groups, and they they're just going with the flow. As you say, it's all it's all disorganised. It's all, it, there, there is no plan. I mean. It all started with, you know, all the geniuses were telling us we, we've got this, we've got the Black Death going to sweep over us and we, we can't do anything about it, but we're going to flatten the curve, okay, flatten the curve. So everybody signed up for flatten the curve and then without anybody telling us, somehow it just morphed into eradication. Okay, well, how's that eradication strategy going? All, you know what we're doing in Australia, Ellie Melly, is I believe... Everybody, every winter, there's a something goes around, doesn't there? Some respiratory thing, okay? Whether it's the flu or the cold or pneumonia, something goes around. 
And some years it's bad and sometimes it's not so bad. And sometimes it's really bad once every 25 years roughly, which is what COVID is. Okay, so um, our bodies every winter build up some type of immunity to the latest version of this respiratory uh, virus, this seasonal virus. Well, basically nobody had the flu last, last winter, so our, all of our defences are down. So we can't be locked out, cut off from the rest of the world forever. So at some point we're going to have to reopen. That means flu viruses are going to come back in, and just normal flu viruses, but then our immunity is going to be down, so it's going to look like it's a really bad flu virus, and then they're going to say it's mutant COVID, you know, times 10 back. Oh, look, look, we could, we could get into the whole evolution of the Quarantine Act, which has turned into the Health Act, which is actually a federal act. Um, and which was designed to protect the integrity and survival of the entire Australian nation, not to protect individuals from harm. And, I mean, never in history has a civilization, let alone the world, decided to destroy its entire empire for the sake of the numbers that we're seeing in COVID. It just doesn't happen because you end up killing more people with poverty than you ever do from the saving them from the virus. So we could have a whole chat about the uh, what history is going to look back onto this Mm -hmm. period of time ago what were you thinking i mean the same people who say we care about every single life then turn around and send thousands and thousands of kids to war to die for the nation so forgive me if i don't exactly believe their mantra now that it's politically convenient for them but yes. uh the only person in politics who seems to be presenting any kind of interest in details about the virus actual technical um, investigations into as many methods as possible because don't forget a vaccine helps lessen symptoms for people who have already got it but it doesn't do anything for those who have actually contracted it and are reacting badly so you can't just have a vaccine you've got to have medical treatments to go along with care is Craig Kelly and he has I know a lot of people like to attack Craig Kelly on the idea that um, he spreads disinformation which he doesn't uh, or that sort of scope but i think the attack of craig kelly is part of a wider attack on anybody who is a centrist blue ribbon menu style conservative because his two main arguments one is against the global climate change bureaucracy and the other is of course against COVID, are the two political chips that both the wet liberals and labor have decided to base their election success on you know they can't have either of those two things be wrong because then most of their their um, politicians have to resign in shame. So they've been going after particular voices, both in their own parties and also in the media, who contradict their political, you know, sacred cows. And I think we're going to see a lot, if they get Craig Kelly, we'll see them go after the next name and the next name and the next name. Do you think there might be any truth in the idea that the reason the Liberals are working in tandem with the press and the Labor Party to get rid of someone like Craig Kelly is because they don't want his narrative in the press come election time? Well, I think it's so dangerous, okay, because when Craig Kelly, when Craig Kelly's message, and you know, a, lot, a lot of people can be, um, have pointed out the truth about global warming and COVID mania, a lot of people don't hear it. Uh, but when, when a politician like Craig Kelly promotes it, when they hear it for the first time, a hell of a lot of people get persuaded, and this is what they fear. Now, in the 20th century, the left uh, globally and, and in the West was saying that uh, free market capitalism and individual rights are bad because it's hurting the poor, and we've got to be socialist and communist because the capitalists are exploiting the poor. Now, when that whole thing blew up 
1989 to 1991, when the whole communist socialist thing was totally discredited. The left in the West, you would have thought, would have said, well, we're really thrilled to be wrong and we're now going to get behind free market uh, capitalism as well. But no, what they did was they threw out the socialism because it was indefensible anymore, it was a political loser, and they embraced their new faith, their new religion, which was global warming. Now, in the, ever since they've been, and now the global warming thing has been around since sort of the late 80s. Al Gore wrote a book in like 1990 and the, that, that's launched the whole thing. But it really got turbocharged in 2006 with uh, Gore's movie and everything else. Now, <clears throat> with all these predictions that we've heard for 20 years, Ellie Melly, okay, not one global warming catastrophe prediction has materialised. But despite that, despite, you know, and you would think that they would be saying, we're so thrilled to be wrong that there is no atmospheric apocalypse. I agree that there is an ecological apocalypse, okay, and that we need to, uh, you know, we need to look, look after the natural world better than we've been doing. And I think that we are doing that. And it's Western nations that are leading the way in that. But there is no atmospheric apocalypse. It's there, all left. one thing for sure you, you, you put out there, socialism and communism does not lead to an environmental uh, salvation. They are the countries that are the most destructive to their environment. So the idea that this globalist movement and that we, and don't forget the climate change movement now is not about the environment. It is a political system which they want us to dismantle capitalism in order to save the environment. That's, that's yeah. written in plenty of the United Nations doctrines about the way they spend money. That is a worry considering that the hard evidence does not support that claim in the slightest and nobody's bothering to say to them, Hang on a second. <laughs> what? Well, when you pointed out that it, that it's that it's not happening, people people will say, "Oh, well, it's good that we transition to a clean uh, environment, uh, uh, power energy source anyway." Okay. Well, uh, you, you know, well, uh, this this is this thing is like a religion where there's sort of like no substance for it, but we've just got to keep going along with it. But there is a very there is potentially a a very nice silver lining with this whole COVID mania thing because exactly the same crowd that had been shoving global warming down our throat for two decades is exactly the same crowd shoving COVID mania down our throat, okay? Now, that can be a good thing because COVID mania is pretty easy to dismantle. Now, when you ask the general public how many people died in America from COVID, You'll be, you'll be shocked if you just ask the average Joe Blow. They will, they will often say 5 or 10% of the population of America has died. And that is understandable if you don't consume too much news and you just follow the 6 o'clock news and you see all these incredible statistics. Okay. The truth is, from 2019 to 2020, my understanding is, is that the death rate from all deaths is up about 3%, and that is what you would expect with a bad flu season, and that's all it's at. The whole, so it's easy to dismantle, and, and that same statistic about the death rate from 2019 to 2020 can be shown in a lot of countries. Now, to be fair, it does look as though the British deaths, for whatever reason, do seem to be have jumped up more than m most other countries, okay? But, you know, in most countries, particularly the United States, which has been the focus of the, the whole COVID thing, you know, the death rate has barely moved, which means that all the hoopla was unnecessary. Okay, and when but I more, point that out, but more, but more particularly with figures like Craig Kelly and other figures in the media, 
they're they are not saying don't do anything what they are doing is shedding light on a wider field of reading and study over an issue which if politicians were genuine about wanting to solve a problem they would be adapting their position based upon uh the information available to them that is what people like churchill who you mentioned before did they had mm. to absorb a lot of information and if possible if it was required they would change their position because you had to do that as a good leader what we are seeing today in not just australia but we're talking about the liberal party and the labor party as well they adopt mm. a political position on something like COVID or on climate change and then that is it once they have staked their election campaign from the previous year on that issue they will not move regardless of what is thrown at them and so people like Craig Kelly who are having a voice and are contradicting their narrative are being attacked and not just attacked verbally and having a debate which is totally fine in politics but they are trying to be witch hunted and removed from the political spectrum entirely and do you think that the fact that the liberals are engaging in that behavior because they certainly are i mean there's you know talk mm. of pre-selection to get rid of these people and craig kelly wins seats there's no political reason why you would get rid of someone like craig kelly as far as winning seats it is to do with these challenging narratives to the political enshrine do you find that behavior worrying i mean we expected the labor party but we don't normally expect that of the liberal party and no one is pointing it out that this is what's going on well, I think it is absolutely appalling. Uh, in the in past generations, in this situation, you would have had over fifty percent of the Liberal Party party room would have been in, in favour of Craig Kelly, and and his rational view of things. Now, one hundred and twenty years ago was the first year of the federation of this country, and the second bill in the first Parliament was the White Australia policy. It was called the Immigration Restriction Bill, and the Hansard goes for six uh, six hundred pages. Almost every member of parliament was eager to speak in favour of it, uh, you know, not, not to speak about it, but speak in favour of it. The only party, so, so the Protectionist Party and the Labor Party were extremely in favour of the White Australia policy. The Labor Party was the most radical. The Labor Party wanted to prevent all non-whites from ever even visiting Australia or merchants coming out here. Uh, but the one party that was not as hardline on the white Australia policy was the free trade party the ancestor of the liberal party and there was um one or two people in there who spoke against every measure of the white Australia policy and, and one of them was the member for wentworth a guy called uh, bruce smith now he was he campaigned against the white Australia policy now in today's orthodox he was really there there was one other guy who also spoke against every measure in today's orthodoxy Look, I got a Chinese wife, so yeah. Look, I think the orthodoxy is largely correct. You know, it we, we the, the current orthodoxy would be that you know it would be not good for Australia to remain entirely monocultural, and that we are actually enriched and strengthened by people from everywhere. Okay, now so therefore we would then say if we go back 120 years, Bruce Smith was a hero. Bruce Smith was a lone voice for reason, and he was attacked. Uh, for his position and he was accused of just wanting to look after his rich mates who wanted cheap labor cheap cheap foreign labor uh, cheap you know new new migrants to, who will work for less and he was accused of all that and he was accused of being anti-science but so it's quite similar with craig kelly but the one difference of course is is that bruce smith was still treated as a member of the house of representatives with a certain level of respect his pre-selection wasn't challenged and people thought well he has a diverse view and this is the parliament and if there's, there's no better place for a diverse view to be broadcast. Well, so now what we have in today's Bruce Smith is Craig Kelly, 
And uh, yes, he is being persecuted like a medieval heretic was persecuted. And, uh, and, and good on him for, for continuing to fight the fight. And of course, you and I both know, being studies of history, that history often favours the contrarians who had to speak against the majority view. There is no safety in consensus and people should not uh, just seek the uh, reassurance that, oh, well, they're in the majority crowd, therefore they are correct. The truth does not care about a consensus and it is not an ex it's not an exchangeable uh, reality for fact in any sense of the word. Uh, yes. Now, you obviously know a lot about the Liberal Party. You are the author of Make the Liberal Party Great Again, which was yeah. a great book about the dealings of the Liberal Party and the idea of reforming it into uh, a better operating party, which I think might have upset a few people. But uh, you have a new book coming out, which you've called The Life and Times of Leadership Challenges on the Right, Volume 1, 1901 to 1939. I, I said you should have called it the Chronicles of Ruddock, but you didn't quite go for that one. Uh, do you want to introduce what your book is about and what you're trying to say with this? So the first book, which I appreciate you reading, Ellie Melly, it's not really, it's, it's really for political nuts like you and me and for people involved in the Liberal Party because it's really a, there's a fair bit of history in there, but it's really talking about the, it's a technical manual on how we need to reform the party. Now, how we need to reform the party is, 18 months after every federal election, I'm proposing that we have a, a convention open to all, a national convention open to all party members where we have a process where we elect the federal parliamentary leader by the membership elects the federal parliamentary leader. This is what they do in Canada. This is what they do in, with all their three major parties in Canada. It's what they do in the UK. The Labor Party in Australia has, a, has attempted to give it a little bit of a go. It's been pretty useless, but, um, and obviously in the United States, they do it, uh, yeah, do it even more democratically with, with the primary system. So I'm saying that's how we're going to get better leadership because firstly, you're going to have to win over the conservative base and then you're going to have to win over the Australian people. Now, at the moment, we have someone like Scott Morrison who's perfectly designed for the current system, which is just try and be right in the middle, try and stand for nothing, try and give both sides a little bit and that's what Scott Morrison is and that's going to lead us on the long march to the left, the slow march to the left under Morrison. Now, when I wrote that book, I originally had in it an appendix, which was the leadership battle between John Howard and Peter Costello. And I had that ready to go. But then I thought, well, look, why don't we go back and look at Howard versus Peacock? And then I thought before too long, well, look, this is a separate book. Okay. And then I thought, well, we'll go back to the beginning of the Liberal Party in 1939 or 1940s. And then I thought, well, look, we might as well go back to Federation because there's so many interesting stories back there. Now, in that, in that, first, so it was going to, it's, it's on the leadership challenge because I'm trying to demonstrate, Ellie Melly, that the process under the old Westminster system of electing a parliamentary leader, where the party room gets together, self-interested party room who want to get promoted to the front bench and they vote for the leader. Like, I'm trying to say that, look, that that is, I, I'm, I'm using all these examples of ugly, messy leadership battles, and I'm saying, look, don't we need a better system? But that's turned into this, uh, yes, a two-volume work now. Uh, but it's it's taken me a lot longer because it's just so fascinating. The, the the federation period of Australian history is so interesting. We had something like seven prime ministers in that first decade, and so you know it's. Uh, but it's all it's there is Australian history is so interesting, and so so few Australians know anything about it, which is very sad. Hopefully, the book can go. I was I was, I was going to say 
very true because Australians tend to know more about English history and American yes. history than we do about our own history. Uh, and that's because no one's Australians are very uh, apathetic about their political history, which in some ways, and I've had this conversation with you before, it's good that we're apathetic about politics. You don't want a highly radicalised, you know, intensively charged political environment because that leads to things like what happened in France and we don't really want to go back down that route. The Europeans can stick with that. It's good that we're a little bit blasé. But at the same time, we should still understand our political history and some of the great political figures. They had wonderful achievements and we don't know enough about them or indeed the people who were not politicians but who were in charge of building this nation. The things they managed mm. to do were quite remarkable. And they throw our modern political system to shame, really. they People t around today couldn't solve half the problems that we've had to deal with in the past. And that worries me because I think we might be on the edge of a global conflict and uh, we're in a, a worse position financially and economically and even militarily than we have been before the opening of, say, World War II. And without mm. strong leaders, you don't survive a conflict. So that does worry me a bit. But you said that you think we're on the, the long march left. And I agree with you. I've often said that Labour light liberals will end in a Labour victory because as soon as a charismatic Labour leader comes along, the Liberal parties are out. You can't stand half-heartedly in the middle when someone strong comes up on the left. Do you think that we'll lose, the Liberals will lose the next election or do you think that they might hang on for one more term? Okay, so they've won three elections. So that is the equivalent of Malcolm Fraser. John Howard won four, Bob Hawke and Keating won five. Um, <clears throat> look, I think if Albo stays as the opposition leader, I think it's pretty much 100% that Scott Morrison will get re-elected. Uh, now, I'll tell you an interesting thing that I've noticed through these leadership challenges is that often a party, usually governments win elections. It's like about, the oppositions only win about one in five. Uh, so mo that means most opposition leaders go down in history as somebody who was never the Prime Minister. But the few opposition leaders that do become Prime Minister often only got the job shortly before the election where they won. Okay, so uh, Malcolm Fraser had only been the leader of the opposition for eight months and he wins a massive election. Bob Hawke, five weeks, leader of the opposition before he wins. John Howard had come back about 13 months before he beat Keating. Rudd had been there for less than a year before he won. Uh, now, Abbott had been there two terms. So it's not like it's a golden rule. But my point is opposition leaders go stale. Bill Shorten at the end of six years of being the opposition leader went stale and people turn off them. But when they're sort of just new in the job, okay, so Albo will not be new in the job. He won't have that sort of that spring that takes him into the federal election. I would like to see a, 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 um, a credible Labor Party because what's happening now is we basically have a very left-wing Liberal Party government, not as left-wing as uh, Malcolm Turnbull, but sort of because Turnbull was more of an ideological left-winger. Morrison is not an ideological left-winger. He doesn't really have an ideology, but he just goes with what the media tell him to do and he goes with the flow and that is generally left. So um, what we... Um, I think that I want to see Labor become... A, I, I would look, a, we'd love to see a right-wing version of Labor, a Bob Hawke version of Labor pop up on the scene. At least that would push the Liberals to the right. 
There's only one, and look, Tanya Plibersek will be worse than Albo. I'm sorry, she doesn't have appeal out in the battlegrounds, uh, the, the marginal seat. It's going to be Keneally. You know it's going to be Keneally. She fails her way everywhere. She will make it, believe me. Well, okay, she's a senator, though, at the moment. Yeah. But you, you think they'll find, they will find a way. They will find a way to make her. I guarantee you. Well, well that's a, look, look, that's an interesting one. It hadn't crossed my mind. And yet they could easily get her into the lower house. Look, she is very presentable, but you do you are right. She's, you know, she didn't go very well in the state elections. She didn't go very well in Benelong. Um, look, I think the one guy that they've got, and look, nobody seems to agree with me, Ellie Billy, so I'll see what you say. I reckon the one guy they've got is Richard Miles. Okay, now I'll, I'll tell you my... Now, he's the deputy leader at the moment. Now, Labor leaders that, that win... When Labor opposition leaders that go on to win, you know, since World War II, there hasn't been that many of them. But, well, there's been Bob Hawke, there's been Gough Whitlam, and there's been Kevin Rudd, who've won from opposition. Uh, I don't think there's been any others. Um, they, two of those three, Whitlam and Rudd, had the persona and the aura of being a Liberal Party person or a Liberal Party voter at least. Okay, Gough Whitlam was a big, big, you know, hardcore barrister living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney there before he moved out to Cabramatta or Cronulla or something. Uh, Kevin Rudd, you know, Mr Church, Mr, you know, small bit, his wife's a successful entrepreneur and, you know, all the nonsense. We know it was all crap, but anyway. But he pretended to be a Liberal and Gough Whitlam had the persona of a Liberal. Bob Hawke didn't. but He was a Rhodes Scholar, so he wasn't, yeah. But my point is Richard Miles went to Geelong Grammar, okay, which is, you know, that's where Prince Charles went to school when he spent a year in Australia. So... Uh, and, you know, he and he's a right wing Labor guy. You know, I remember during the, 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 the Gulf War, the second Gulf War, I'm pretty sure him and Stephen Conroy were a little bit in favour of it. OK, which you know, turned out to be to be wrong. But um, um, <clears throat> so I and look, he, he, he actually he doesn't really have any enemies. People you never hear people say, I hate Richard Miles. And yes, a lot of people don't know who he is. I, I'll, I'll give you that. But, you know, I mean, that that that's not often that's not always a terrible thing either. But anyway, look, I, I, I have basically accepted that we're going to have ScoMo, the plotter, who's just going to basically, you know, pitch camp in the long march to the left. I've accepted, I suspect, he won't want to, they never want to quit the job, Ellie. So I suspect he's got, I suspect he's got another two, potentially three terms in him. I'm not thrilled what, about it, but I suspect. What you have done is basically expand on Machiavelli's concept that a good leader must have a good opposition because you have to be be in a fight in order to be uh, popular and to have victories. And even if you can't find someone to fight against, you have to then give yourself an objective to obtain. And back right. in the Roman Empire, they lost their idea of an objective and that's when mm. they started to collapse. But thank you for being here today. I have one final question to wrap us up and that is yes. our fun little ending question. And that is if you could have anybody to dinner that is historical, living or dead, uh, who would you invite to dinner and why? So would I be going back in time to have dinner with them in their prime or they'd be coming to my place tonight at 6 o'clock? I'm not strict on those rules. You can have whichever you would like. Well, look, I mean, you know, I have, for, for some reason, I have been just fascinated with history since, sincerely, when I was from about the age of four. But, look, the big name in history, look, I'd love to meet Alexander the Great, okay, and, uh, you know, lots of other people, okay, but obviously the biggie, the biggie is the guy 
whose birthday marks the calendar. Okay, so we're now in the year 2021. And where does that 2021 start counting from? It starts counting from the birth of the carpenter in Nazareth. Now, I'm not a churchgoer, and I'm probably, uh, sincere or sincere Christians would probably say that John Ruddick is not a Christian if they knew what I believed. I think in a modest way I am a Christian because I think, look, he probably wasn't the son of God. But if anybody was, if any of the human beings that have ever lived on this planet were in some way especially connected to God, if anyone was, and I doubt they were, but if they were, I'd say it would be Jesus. So, yeah, I think it, that, that would be that would be the most fascinating person to get to know, yes, if we could, uh, if we could learn each other's language. I've just lost a bet. I was, I was certain that you were going to say either Trump or Reagan. So now, now I've lost a bet. That's, that's terrible. Okay. Oh, no, no. We'd have to go back into ancient history to, you know, to, well, that, that would just be the most fascinating part to meet somebody from back there. But look, well, Jesus, is biggie. Jesus is the biggie, okay? I mean, look, we're, we're, whether we like it or not, whether we love him or hate him, the fact is he's influenced the world more than any other human being, okay? And he was only a public figure for about a year before they killed him. So it is quite an extraordinary story. Well, thank you very much for joining us, John Ruddock. You are a true <laughs> cultural warrior in this uh, very difficult environment to be a libertarian and a conservative. So thank you for joining us and best of luck with your new book. You'll have to let us know when it's out so that we can have a chat about it. And uh, you have thank a you. lovely afternoon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for, for all, all the glorious punches you throw on social media, etc. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.